We believe you have a story to share. For 2,000 years, humankind has believed in the power of story. In healthcare, we're finding ways to better heal those who are in front of us. Join us as we explore healing stories now. Well, I want to welcome everyone to another edition of Healing Stories podcast, Everyday Miracles in Everyday Lives. And it is my great honor to be with Dr. AJ Cianfloco today, a 72 grad from uh, John Carroll University and former director of the Cleveland Clinic Sports Medicine Department, and really a, a physician for his whole life to those who are in athletics and is the retired physician for the Cleveland Cavaliers, among other things. And Dr. Sam Floker, we're so grateful to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Martin. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I've been looking forward to this opportunity. One of the things that we always do as we sit down with a guest is a simple question, and that is, could you tell us who you are? Well, that could be a difficult question. I'm currently a retired physician. Uh, I practiced for 40 years and retired five years ago. And I've spent most of my time the last five years as a student pursuing a master's degree in history. So I guess the answer to that question is I'm a student. That's who I am today. And as my uh, one of my neighbors put it Friday night, um, I'm in a position known as ABT, all but the thesis to graduate. There you have it. ABT is probably better than uh, just get the degree and it's better than good. It's done. Uh, so the, moving along in terms of how you have been a physician and now moved to a student, that must be a, a different reality for you. Well, what I like to say is, though, medicine was my vocation, history was my avocation. And when it was time to stop practicing medicine, I switched. So history became my vocation and my pursuit. It's beautiful. I, I would imagine there were elements of history that drew you into medicine, but that would be very interesting to start there of how did this vocation start? How did you feel drawn into medicine? Well, I, I think the, the question really for me was a decision between the two fields, medicine or history. Uh, I would say that the uh, spark uh, was put in my mind by probably my mother, who always wanted to be a nurse, and one of her best friends who became my godmother, who was a nurse. And um, I, I believe your mother was a nurse, right? I, she started off as that, yes. Yes, and um, that may have influenced your father's decision a little bit as well. Um, but you know the the other person that probably had a lot to do with it was a dermatologist that I saw as um, adolescent. You know, as most adolescents do, I had acne, and as I tell people, it it, it was his personality, uh, his bedside manner. He, he was such a gentleman. And what I would consider uh, an ideal role model 
for being a physician uh, that helped me make my decision. Now, he never knew this. Uh, and as I tell people, that may have had something to do with my initial interest in becoming a dermatologist. But if this gentleman had been a nephrologist, uh, that would have, you know, that would probably have been my initial area of interest. But as far as I can remember back in grade school, I, on into high school, I, I wanted to be a physician. Now, that comes to a point late in high school where I had one particular history teacher um, who taught world and European history, which I found very, very interesting. And prior to that, I would say my interest in history was in ancient history. But at that point, I became interested in what would be considered postmodern history, 16th or 16th or 17th century onward. And for about a year, it was a tough decision between the two. And when it came time to apply to college, I basically had to make the decision and I decided to pursue medicine. Did you find that you were able to, over the course of time, integrate that love of history, maybe even specific with patients um, as they told their story? And there's such a deep... Um, relationship with patients in terms of them giving their history. It's one of the first things that they do. You're exactly right. I mean, that, that is the first part of your visit with the patient, and that is taking the history and learning about the patient's history, not just the history of their problem, but their entire, you know, their personal life, their family history, um, their social history. I mean, that's all part of it. Have you found over the years there's a, a corollary between what heals people based upon uh, looking at their history? Uh, you have now the seat of self-reflection and looking back over these 40 plus years, were there things that you said uh, there was a deep connection to or maybe just some themes that came out of what really heals patients? I, I think the more you can talk to a patient and the more you listen to the patient, you can establish a relationship that will then, will then uh, give you the insight to allow you to help the patient heal. Um, if you look beyond that to give you those answers, and that would be uh, looking uh, into doing testing, whether it be laboratory testing or in orthopedics in sports medicine, x-ray, MRI, and today ultrasound, you're going to miss the boat, so to speak. Uh, it all starts with talking to the patient and examining the patient. And that's where you can establish the relationship to allow you to help the patient heal. It's, it's kind of who you said really impacted you. Uh, and his presence. And is there a way that people can learn how to listen, how to have presence with someone who is hurting? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, today, the, the way medicine has gone with the advent of the electronic medical record, it, it's all too frequently that you walk into a doctor's office and 
you know, whether it be a physician, a physician's assistant, or nurses, nursing, uh, nurse practitioner, you, you basically see someone at a computer typing. You don't see someone looking at you and listening. And that's where it all starts. You know, sitting down, facing the patient, and not giving them the impression that you're focused more on what you're putting into the computer, but that you're focused on listening to them and hearing and understanding what they have to say. It's a frequent comment I would hear from my colleagues, especially those that went on and took a number of management courses was, or leadership courses was that I hear you. Well, we hear a lot of things, but are we listening and do we understand what we hear? And, and that's what you have to do when you're with a patient. Mm-hmm. It, 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 I imagine it's not something taught. It might be something that you gain over time. And how does one gain that over time if they're uh, fast-paced thinking of 15-minute increments? Uh, that's a, the 15-minute increment's a good point. Uh, I, I, I think it it has to start with who you're exposed to in medical school. I mean, who is teaching you physical diagnosis and how you see that person interact with patients. Uh, If what you see is someone is an automaton sitting at a computer punching in data, you're you're not gonna learn the approach I described to you. Uh, You need to see someone sitting down facing the patient, listening to the patient, and then examining the patient mm-hmm. and not jumping to conclusions um, before they've done all of that. It's in a, especially in a time where you're going fast, it's easy to make a quick judgment. And uh, there also is a way that then that I would imagine you, it falls into your other parts of life. Um, how do you find that joy in the other parts of life or the way that um, the situation is set up that you're constantly on. Um, You're always, the phone could ring at any point. Um, And I can only put it to uh, a a young mom who's got all these kids around. They're never not on. Yet there's something about the development and you talked about that in medical school. How How does that happen? How is it that you're able to keep a quick focus to the person in front of you uh, and, and to have that joy. I, I think you, you have to accept the fact that once you walk in to the room with the patient or answer that phone call, somehow you have to put everything else out of your mind. Uh, you have to ignore or avoid any other distraction. Um, and, and really that goes for the whole day in the office. Um, your focus needs to be who you're going to see uh, and being there for them, not what you think is waiting for you at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And the end of the day is going to come when you're done taking care of those patients, whenever that is. And it may go home with you and continue once you get home. Um, may not end until you go to bed, whenever that is. Did you find over the years, 
you became more focused in the environment? Um, and then is that something uh, that you found in retirement that went away? I, I'm very interested in how that pace uh, does it stop once you become retired um, or is the focus something that you bring into your lessons in history now? One advantage, I think, going right from the practice of medicine to the classroom um, with very little time in between um, was that my day was filled. And uh, you you have graduate degrees um, and and it it. I found that it was more involved than the work that I had to put in for an undergraduate degree because your life for that week in between classes was whatever your reading assignment was and the paper you had to write. And that became my focus. Now, fortunately, um, my wife was very supportive and was always my second reader. Um, I, I was blessed with being married to uh, someone with a degree in English, which helped to correct my papers, and who was a lawyer, wrote herself for her career. Um, so I, I think the two kind of, it, it was a good opportunity for us to do something together and learn from each other. Well, that's a beautiful point. The subject verb direct object does come into play uh, when you're about to submit and having someone to help you along, but it brings up just how we feel supported with a vocation or a vocation, as you say, uh, in life and how to integrate the partner or the spouse professionally. I'm, I'm with a lot of young career people, and this is something that is not always understood. Are there you know, things that you see or look back and say, this is really critical in order to keep your partner and, and spouse uh, with you uh, over all the years in practicing medicine. How does, how does one make sure that that's not an afterthought once you uh, come towards the end of your career? Well, you know, I, I, that's a good point. And I think you have to accept that, excuse me, going into any career, not just medicine, but, uh, we're talking about medicine today, and um, whoever is in it with you has to understand the demands that are going to be placed on you. But you also have to understand your responsibility to your spouse, your significant other, um, your family, your children. Um, and I'll extend that to brothers and sisters and parents. You have to find time for them. Um, and. Also, if you can't help them understand why you're not there. Uh, I was fortunate. I, was, I am married to someone who understood. She had demands uh, placed on her by her career. She traveled. There were times we weren't going to be together early on because she was away. But then later on, it was because I was away. Now, one nice thing was she was able to be with me and part of a lot of what I did evenings and weekends and traveling. So, and, and she also knew that even if we were on vacation, regardless of where we were, um, that could be interrupted. Mm -hmm. it, it gets into that other part of who you are and, and what went on, especially dealing with uh, very pro 
high profile people uh, within athletics. And I think we put a lot of uh, stuff on athletes, uh, having traveled all over the world when someone lets you know they're from the United States, they ask you if, you know, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan. And mm. there's just levels of when these people become something more. And I am really interested in, in just how, how did you learn from them? Uh, what did, what did some of the top athletes in the world kind of teach you one about, um, what it means to be, uh, a physician, maybe how you interacted with them over the years. Um, but, but then just what it means to be a human being. Yeah. Well, uh, fortunately I had some very good role models from the beginning, uh, to help me learn how I wanted to, um, approach these individuals. And initially at the college level, uh, understanding that they were there not as athletes, but they're students. And it was our job to take, well, it was our responsibility uh, to look out for their well-being uh, as young men and women from the standpoint of them being students and not let any illness or injury prevent them from achieving their goal as a student. Uh, achieving their goal as an athlete was secondary to that. Uh, and mainly, as you know, I dealt with Division three athletes right. uh, who were there for an education. They weren't there on scholarship. Um, but my mentors, and I would include in that some of the athletic trainers I worked with uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, I'm, I'm sorry, at John Carroll, and then initially with the Cleveland Browns, um, that helped, but also some of my physician role models, uh, some of whom were the founding fathers of sports medicine, both from a primary care and an orthopedic standpoint. And I think what you have to understand when you approach these individuals is uh, you're not their coach. Um, you're not there representing the organization. Uh, you're there as their physician. And they have to trust you uh, in that role. And, and you have to win their trust. Uh, they have to understand that you're there to look out for their well-being. And um, be their advocate and, and prevent them from um, being put in a position that, that's uh, going to lead to their harm or injury in some way. Um, and I, I think that's easy to accomplish. Uh, what you, first of all, you don't approach them as a fan. And you want them to know that you're always there for you. And that's where that 24 7, 365 days of the year comes into play because they develop a relationship with you and a trust that sometimes doesn't go beyond you. And even when they leave the team or the organization, they'll fall back to you rather than who their physician is, um, wherever they've gone to after they leave the team you met them with. And, and uh, for the most part, they're all human beings. You know, and that's the way you have to treat them. And I would imagine 
there are some who stand out in your mind and some who grew up with you in terms mm-hmm. of being a physician. And there's a level that that relationship with a personal uh, sense of health, that's really what I, I am encouraging all, so many because it can't be a transactional uh, video chat. And mm-hmm. that's what I think you represent is these people, follow, you're incredibly important to their career. And mm-hmm. how do we think about these top athletes is having that kind of board of, of health directors uh, isn't removed from us as well. I mean, granted, we're not uh, going to the NBA championship, but in a ways we're trying to show up for our own uh, game every day. And how could we think about just the need for a a health dialogue uh, and not just let it go until you present at the ER? You know, when it comes down to it, it's the same relationship with both. You know, you have to win their trust. Um, The patient in the office or the patient in the locker room or training room. And um, you have to uh, let them develop confidence in you. And that's something you have to earn and continue to work for. And to to. Once you've established that, I think it's easy for both the patient and the athlete uh, to buy into what you have to say, your your diagnosis, your treatment plan, uh, your prognosis, and helping them work towards healing. Um, You have a strong focus on healing. And for the patient or the athlete to heal, they have to trust and have confidence in their provider. They have to have trust and confidence in the diagnosis that that provider makes and in the provider's treatment plan. And it doesn't stop there. I mean, once they get better, you have to help them develop confidence that they can get back to where they were before. you know, working as a construction worker or back in the office or home to their family. Uh, That's no different than an athlete returning to whatever their field of competition is. They have to trust that they've healed and they're confident that they're going to go back and not have the same problem again. I'm thinking of my mother-in-law who just has had some news of breaking a foot and uh, she's not going into game seven with LeBron, um, but she clearly has her life now that she has to renegotiate. Uh, right. What have been some of the things maybe you say to people when, boy, the it's just accidents happen, but now what? Like, how do I get past, there's a morning, I imagine, these kind of things. Uh, how do you give people hope when there's been a setback, especially in life like this? Uh, I'm really thinking of her today. Yeah. Well, you know, once you've made the diagnosis and let them know what the treatment plan is, you know, there are many things in orthopedics, like a broken foot, um, that once healing has occurred, the treatment hasn't stopped. Now, you can have cataract surgery. um, You can have your gallbladder appendix removed. 
there's a period of rest afterwards. And for the most part, they're short, so they don't involve a lot of deconditioning or uh, loss of cardiovascular endurance or strength. So after the period of rest, the individual can get back to doing whatever they want. But with a joint replacement, uh, with a broken foot, um, with an ACL tear in an athlete or arthroscopy for a meniscal tear, there's downtime. But after your mother-in-law comes out of the cast, she's looking forward to physical therapy. And you have to let the patient know from day one um, that that's going to impact their overall healing and function later uh, in some respects more so than what you do. You know, if the, if the fracture is aligned properly, if it's in the cast, um, it's going to heal. Once the patient comes out of the cast, um, they have to learn how to walk again. They have to regain their strength and cardiovascular endurance and, uh, and their trust in that foot to get back to their life. And you, have to be, you don't have to just be their doctor. You have to be their psychologist and their cheerleader. Yes. This is key of resilience. Mm -hmm. We've been reading and some of the research that I've been doing and, and looking forward to writing about this is around burnout. And uh, I don't know if you saw burnout in the top athletes in the world um, because we're seeing it quite a bit in the... 60% to 55 of physicians surveyed uh, in the world right now, and the United States specifically having a problem with that. Were there any ways, I mean, you're talking about someone who has something happen to them and then they have to keep climbing the next mountain. Uh, did you learn anything from those top athletes about burnout, about just the, the endurance of, of keeping going even when setbacks happen? Yeah, I, I think the more elite athletes um, and, and these can be recreational athletes too. understand that they do need some downtime. Um, I think you're more likely to see burnout in athletes that compete year round. And you tend to see this a lot in younger kids. For instance, if you play AAU basketball, the philosophy is the more you play, the better you're going to get. Well, the Europeans look at it opposite, just the opposite. The less you play and the more you train and get instruction, the better you're going to be. Um, so the, the younger athletes aren't um, physically as beaten up, I, I would say, or 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 overused. Now, as an athlete grows, you tend to focus more on one sport and you tend to play less year round. But even at the professional level, and I, I, I don't know, if, I, I can't say this is uh, so much true for baseball or, bas or baseball, football or hockey. Um, but when you look at basketball, it's a long season. It, it, it really starts in September. Uh, even if you don't make it to the playoffs, you go into April. And hockey's comparable to this. Um, and then there's international competition in the summer. 
and, and it may not always be the Olympics, but there's world games. And, and like now in, in soccer, there's the Euro Cup and there's comparable events in South America. Uh, so you could have guys playing the better part of the year, but as they mature, they realize they need downtime and they need to rest. The aspect of rest is coming out more and more now in terms of sleep, uh, in terms of measuring that, uh, even with these devices. Uh, and, and I wonder how those who can have boundaries around the rest piece uh, maintain a sense of physical performance. But it wasn't anything I, I had heard about when I was growing up or thinking about it. And the real thing was you can rest when you're dead. Uh, which wasn't helpful, and I won't I won't put no Grandma Schreiber on that. But I mean, I think the whole kind of component of rest. How does one uh, even think about that? Because now in retirement, people would say, "Hey, you got an ability to have a lot of rest." But how can you build that in, even in in my stage, um, so that you don't just wait to retirement to rest? Yes, sleep is important. It's it's important for a lot of reasons. I mean, you need the rest for, for your muscles, um, for your endurance. Um, when you sleep, your heart rate should drop, and that should allow your heart muscle to rest as well. It's called a nocturnal dip. Some, it, your blood pressure should drop with it, so there's less stress on your blood vessels. And I'll, I learned that well from your father. Um, but you know, it, it, and it it doesn't just apply to athletes; it applies to all of us. Um, now, what I would see the athletes do is learn how to divide their sleep in half. Mm-hmm. Um, they would, particular on game days, they could very easily go back to the room after a short morning um, walk through lunch take a nap, get up, play a game, and um, go back home. And now there were some players that would have issues after games getting to sleep, in in particular if you were traveling. Um, But, you know, you would – something you would have to to work with them on. Now, but that applies to everybody. I mean, you come home from a busy work day, you you have – family to take care of, family responsibilities, and then all of a sudden, you just can't shut it off. And there are probably a large number of people out there with sleep disorders that go undiagnosed because they don't look into it. And um, one in particular, like sleep apnea, uh, that requires an assistive device when you sleep, excuse me, we think of that being related to someone who's obese or Pickwickian, um, based on the Charles Dickens character. Um, But that happens in people that aren't overweight, and it happens in uh, thin people as well. And um, that that can be a problem. I mean, if you don't sleep, there's a lot of things now that attribute to that lack of sleep, and it's decreased longevity and increased likelihood of dementia. So the, the kind of fundamental parts of 
learning how to be a human being are yes. and and it can get very complicated or we could keep it simple and mm-hmm. that's where i think our conversation was a lot of today is when you think of elite athletes when you think of the nba finals there are really some fundamentals of things to not let go of and right. i find that fascinating um because we think just so much of there's got to be this secret to all this stuff of the body but what you've presented today is that there's really some fundamentals of taking a look just at your history and, and of, of how you function uh, as a human being. True. And, and you can apply um, what, what we've discussed regarding elite athletes to someone with an elite career, someone who's has a career and a family. Um, yeah. I just finished watching Joe Biden's news conference and, um, you know, that poor guy has to go 24 seven and, and he's what, if he's not 80, well, he's in his upper seventies. So, um, that's, you know, that's gonna play stress on him and toll and, uh, there's somebody watching him to make sure he takes care of himself. And there'll be a history written. Uh, in terms of that, on it. So that might be your next paper, going from you know lead athletes to presidents and and how they function. I have to say, uh, our conversation meant a lot to me today. Uh, you, you always uh, help me to see kind of the elements that are fundamental uh, with life, and you've also uh, been very uh, aware of how many things happen to people and be patient with them. And I, I want to thank you for that because I think it's a great gift, uh, not just to me, but well, thank you all your patience. I, I think I learned some of that from somebody we both know. <laughs> I think Father, we, I think we did. So we'll we'll uh, attribute that to some of that wisdom uh, over there in uh, in Ohio. So. I, right. If there were um, people who wanted to get a hold of you, I, I know that uh, people will find you uh, as as a student, and and I think that would be great. And all I can say is thank you for taking the time with us um, and helping us to see uh, these elements uh, that really help us to be fully human. Well, well, thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Take care. Time heals all wounds. Join us for our next episode of Healing Stories.